0: Amen. Let's say a joy to sing those songs together, to look to the Lord together, to confess the gospel together in in prayer and in song. Um, So encouraging to my heart this morning. Uh, I see a number of visitors with us today, and I just want to welcome you. Uh, I got to meet some of you before the service, but just uh, so glad you could join us this morning for worship. Uh, We're in a series in Joshua, and as as we go into the word here, just I want to invite you to turn to Joshua and um, and to tell you visitors that we uh, would love to get to know you better, love to to pray with you, uh, talk with you, and and just walk together as we seek to know God and respond to His word this morning. So again, you can turn to to Joshua, and as you do, just want to talk for a moment about what we're about to do this morning in our build class. We actually began a, a new book called uh, 12 Traits. And this morning, uh, what, what this study is, is 12 Traits of a, a Biblical Church. What does God say the church should be? And the first trait we looked at was preaching, the preaching of God's Word. We talked about the importance of expeditional preaching, preaching what the Word of God says, uh, preaching through books of the Bible, not just preaching topics that seem relevant to us, not just preaching a series on how to handle your money or, or 10 strategies for raising your kids. You know, the author of the book we're reading, David Platt, talks about why people have such a tendency to want to hear messages on Sunday that are more topical in nature. And and it actually makes a lot of sense. It's because these seem more relevant to our lives. They seem more relevant to us uh, to come to uh, a church and hear, again, 10 ways to help your kids, right, to help yourself as you help your kids. That, That seems relevant to us. You know, this week I tried, I tried, didn't succeed, to fix a leaky shower. And we ended up having our entire master bathroom torn out. (laughs) Yes, it's true. We had the normal experiences of navigating marriage and parenting. Uh, In in school, I had to memorize the Hebrew vowel system. And all the while, I'm looking at the book of Joshua. And I'm looking at Rahab and and chapter 2. And I'm asking God, how does this apply to my life? As I'm navigating these responsibilities, as I'm navigating these difficulties, how does this apply to my life? It doesn't seem relevant at first. Each one of you could give similar stories about your weeks, and this week we will face similar responsibilities and similar difficulties. But this morning, we're going to gather to hear about the story of a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who lived 3,000 years ago. What does that have to do with your life this week? How is that relevant? And here's what I want to say as we begin, as we talked about in Build, this story is more relevant to our day-to-day lives Than any topical message I could possibly preach this morning, because in it, God provides the type of deeper help that we all desperately need through His Word. His Word does not just instruct us with what to do in all these situations, but it actually transforms us from the inside out, changes who we are, so that we can navigate these difficulties in a way that glorifies God. And so we are in Joshua chapter 2 this morning, in our series, Receiving the Promises I just want to walk through this story with you this morning. It's a pretty famous story, the story of Rahab. You can see how it begins in chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Well, this opening verse... Of this story, the author of Joshua brings to mind two significant moments in Israel's history. And they were not good significant moments. They were not good. So first, it brings to mind the first time that Israel had spies go into the land. In Numbers 13 and 14, you can read about this. Moses was leading Israel. They had come through the Exodus in the wilderness. Now they're ready to go into the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies into the land to to see what it's like to see their enemies, to figure out what is this going to take. And so they go in, and most of you probably know the story that the twelve spies come back, and two of them, Joshua being one of them, Caleb the other, say, the Lord will give us the land. He has promised it to us. We can do this. But the other ten spies all say, they're giants. We have no chance against these guys. Why did we even leave Egypt? And they discourage the people from taking the land as God had promised. And God responds to this unbelief, this unfaithfulness, by condemning that entire generation to die in the wilderness instead of enter the promised land. He says, for 40 years you will be in the wilderness until the very last one of you has died. And the next generation will come in. The only ones that could go in from that generation were Joshua and Caleb. And that's what happened in Numbers 13 and 14. They did not believe the promise of God, and God judged them for it, and they had 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness. So that's one thing that this passage brings to mind, verse 1, because we see spies going into the land again, and you kind of wonder, what's going to happen this time? But there's another unfortunate episode that it reminds us of, because you notice that they are sending them from Shittim. Now, in Numbers 25, it was this town that Israel lived in, when the people of Israel, it says that they prostituted themselves to the Moabite daughters, and they worshipped the Baal of Peor. It was in this town that Israel was unfaithful to God. They got swept into immorality and idolatry in Shittim. And so both of these lie in the background of the reader. As he says, we're sending two spies in from Shittim. And, And the story doesn't seem to start very well, does it? Because these two spies immediately go where? into the house of a prostitute. And so you begin to wonder as a reader, what is going to happen here? Are they going to are they going to be unfaithful again? Are they not going to believe the promises of God again? And, and and I think this is simply the author's way one of recording what happened, but two of highlighting to us the theme of this chapter. And the theme is faith. Will Israel have faith this time around? Now, it's likely that Rahab's house was, uh, that she was a prostitute, but it was also used as a tavern or an inn, so so the fact that they entered there does not necessarily uh, connote that they did anything wrong in that house, anything immoral, but at the same time, the author wants us to know she was a prostitute, and as the story unfolds, we'll see all the reasons why he wants us to see that, but but the question that is in our minds as we read verse one alone is, will Israel, have faith. Will they believe the promise of God this time as they go into the land? Or will they come back and say, there's no way, let's go back to Egypt? Well, let's look at verses 2 through 7, see how the story unfolds. And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken two men and hidden them She said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Well, the first thing we realize about these two spies is that they were not very good at their job. The king of Jericho immediately finds out that they are there. And so he sends men to Rahab, and he commands her to deliver these two spies. But surprisingly, what does this Canaanite prostitute do? She hides them on her roof, and then she tells the king's men, yes, they came, but I didn't know who they were, and then they left, and and you better go get them. They, They went that way. And the the king's men believe her and they they leave Jericho, they go out of the town and and they're chasing them through uh, towards the Jordan uh, when no one's actually there to chase. Her plan works. And, and, And when they leave, the text tells us the gates are shut behind them. And that's important to note because it means that even though these two spies' lives have been preserved to this point, that they don't have a way out of the city right now. The gates are shut. Now, as a... Ashore aside this morning, I want to take just a moment to address the reality that Rahab lies in this moment to save the spies. This this raises and has raised all sorts of ethical questions uh, for people, and, and rather than delve into those deeply, I just want to hopefully, helpfully clarify a few things so that this is not looming in your mind as a distraction throughout this sermon. What, what do we make of her lying to save the spies? Well, first, we just need to say what's very obvious in Scripture. Lying is a sin. Lying is indeed a sin. And also that God promises in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he will always provide a way out of sin. So, so, so lying is a sin, and God promises to provide a way out so that we do not ever have to sin. That, that's just fundamental to what we read there. Second, we need to know there's a difference between the Bible telling of an action and commending an action. So so the Bible tells us that Jacob had four wives. It does not instruct us to have four wives. It actually instructs us to do just the opposite. So here the Bible tells us about Rahab's lie, but it never explicitly commends the lie. It never tells us in the Old Testament or the New Testament that, that Rahab's lie was honoring to the Lord. Now third, we should understand that this situation is not a crystal clear issue to all believers. It may be a crystal clear issue to you, I don't believe it's crystal clear for everyone. Just imagine the difficult choice you would have to make if you were hiding slaves on the Underground Railroad and someone came and said, are you hiding slaves here? Or imagine the difficult choice you'd have to make if you were hiding Jews in Nazi Germany in your house. Or as the Hebrew midwives of Exodus did, hiding babies from a ruler intent on killing them. This is exactly the same situation she was facing And I just highlight those, not to give an answer to the question, but just to say, it is a difficult situation. And I believe whatever position you take, you can be charitable with those who disagree with you on it. But fourth, and I wanted to make this a short aside, because most importantly, we need to recognize that the author of Joshua doesn't really concern himself with the fact that she lied. He's telling the story not to make us zone in on the lie, but to show us what God did In this woman's life. One commentator puts it this way, it is tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibble endlessly about the matter, and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth. And that comes in the next passage. So again, you can think about that and discuss that to some degree, but don't be distracted by the lie from what this passage is really about. And that is what she says next. Look at verse 8 with me. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So here we find out what Rahab was up to. Why does she hide the spies? Why would a Canaanite prostitute hide two Israelite spies from the king of Jericho? And here's why. It's because she had faith. It's because she had faith. Now we're going to look more closely at her words in a few minutes, but to summarize what she says, she says, all the people of Jericho, indeed all the people of Canaan, have heard about what your God has done from Egypt to the Jordan. And we are all melting with fear in our hearts. We know, we know that this God has given you the land. And Rahab understood that what happened to all the other kingdoms from Egypt to the kings by the Jordan, she said, I know it's going to happen to us too. I know that that's about to come. And so essentially in these verses, she seeks to get herself onto the winning team. She knows how history is going to end here. She knows what's going to happen. And she's seeking to get herself off the Jericho team and onto the Israelite team to to get herself in with Israel because she has faith in Israel's God. So she asked the spies to make an oath with her. She says, just as I showed kindness to, to you in hiding you from the king, would you please show kindness to me and to my family when you come to conquer Jericho? So she seeks assurance from them that they will save her and her families from death on that day. So let's see how they respond in verse 14 and following. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So the spies respond to Rahab's act of faith and request for deliverance on that day. And they say, our lives for yours. Our lives for yours for yours. They they agree to this oath. They they swear on, on their own lives before the Lord that this that is they are grateful for what she has done, so they will make sure that her family is protected. But they do give a few conditions for Rahab to see this through. They make an oath, but then they have to make a plan. And so here's the plan they make. First, they ask her to get them help out of the city. Remember, the gates are shut. And, and when they say, don't let this business of ours be known, well, Everyone already knows it. <laughs> the king knows they're there. So what they're really asking is, is, help us get back home safely. Give us a way out. Don't, don't reveal where we are until we get back. And so they ask her to help them get back uh, to Israel. And what she does is she lowers them out of her window, which is built into the city wall with the rope. And so, so they, they climb out that way. And she tells them where to go so that they can be safe until they can get back home. But second, they give her a scarlet cord. And they say, hang this in your window. Hang this scarlet cord in your window. And we come to conquer Jericho, and we see that cord in your window. That will be a sign to us to not touch your house, to not touch the people in your house. And they say, everyone inside the house will be safe from attack if that scarlet cord is in your window. But if anyone leaves that house... If anyone comes outside, we will not be guilty for what happens to them. And if you're in the house and any one of us comes into your house and harms you, then we will be guilty. And so that's the arrangement they make. Hain the cord, and that's the sign that your house will be spared from the attack that day. Just make sure you stay inside with all of your family. So she agrees to this principle in verses 20 to 24. Here's how it ends. Then she sent them away, and they departed So the story closes with Rahab following the spies' instructions, tying the scarlet cord in the window, and keeping her oath not to make known where they are going until they are safe. And the Israelites, they also follow her instructions, and, and they go to where she says, and they stay there for three days, and then they finally go back to Joshua and to Israel. And what's the report they give? This is the moment where you say, what are they going to say? Are, are they going to be faithful or not? Are they going to say God has given us the land or not? And, and here's the thing, we... We have no reason to think that in one generation that the Canaanites got any smaller. It's not like they're less powerful than they were a generation ago. It's not like Israel is any stronger than they were. Nothing's changed. So what are they going to say? Well, for one, these spies really didn't see anything, did they? They got found out right away and had to get out of there. Yet still, their report comes straight from the mouth of Rahab herself. They say the Lord has given the land into our hands, and the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They got that not from spying on the land. They got that from Rahab. This spy's report will not lead to another wilderness wandering. This is not another bad moment in Israel's history. They have faith. Their encounter with Rahab, of all people, gives them the confidence that they need to believe in the promise of God. And as for Rahab, just turn your Bible ahead a few pages. I just want us to see this today in chapter 6. See how this ends for Rahab. We'll see this in a few weeks as well. But look at chapter 6, verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And not only did she live in Israel to that day, you know what? Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She became part of the people of God that that day. Now, what do we make of this story? As we step back, we need to answer the question, how does this story fit into the book of Joshua? And so let's just remember briefly, what is the book of Joshua about? Well, as our title suggests, the the book is about the people of God receiving the promises of God. That's what we're seeing in Joshua. The people of God, Israel, receiving the promise of God the land that God had given to them. And second, Joshua is about those people, as they receive those promises, accomplishing the mission of God. And what is that mission? In Joshua, the mission is to be instruments of God's righteous judgment on the people of the land for their sin. It is a hard mission. It is a sober mission. God is judging these peoples. After hundreds of years of persisting in sin and idolatry, God, in his sovereign, righteous wrath, enters in and judges the people through Israel. That's what's going on. The people are receiving the promises, and at the same time, they are judging the sinful people who live in the land. That's what Joshua is about. So how does this story fit into the book of Joshua? Well, it does two things. It does two things for us. First, the story of Rahab clarifies what it means to be part of the people of God. It clarifies what it means to be part of the people of God. Who is Israel? It's an important question for us as we read our Bibles. Who is Israel? Is Israel primarily an ethnic state, or is Israel the people who put their faith in God? And the answer of Joshua 2 is Israel is comprised of all those who put their faith in God. There is no distinction among people groups in Israel. Israel is those who put their faith in God. Now, yes, it is composed in the Old Testament of primarily Israelites. But we see, even in Exodus, as Israel left Egypt, we see that there were people from Egypt that went with Israel and were part of Israel from that day forward. Israel was never about which ethnicity you are, which people group you are from. Israel was all about who has faith in God. It's about being the people who have sworn worship and allegiance and following to the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh. That's Israel. And this story shows us that that as the people of God are receiving the promises of God, when we say the people of God, we're talking about all those who put their faith in God. And second... The story clarifies for us, and it demonstrates for us, the possibility of salvation for those who are about to fall under God's judgment. This book is a hard book for us, because it's all about the judgment of God on these peoples. The whole first half of the book is about Israel going in and conquering the land and devoting these peoples to destruction as instruments of God's judgment. But before we get to any of that in the book, before any of that starts, what happens? A Canaanite prostitute is saved from that judgment. And it shows us that anyone from these peoples could have been saved. It shows us that before the judgment came, there was a possibility of salvation for all these people. And this leads us to the main idea this morning. Listen to this truth from this passage. Though we all deserve the punishment of God's judgment, anyone can receive the promise of God's blessing by placing their faith in him. Though we all deserve the punishment of God's judgment, anyone can receive the promise of God's blessing by placing their faith in him. The promise of God's blessing, the promises of God are not for a specific people group, not for a specific type of person. They are for all who put their faith in him. And the punishment for our sin that we all deserve, we can be saved from through faith in God. We all deserve it. We are all like Rahab. None of us is better than Rahab. We all deserve the punishment of God's judgment. We all deserve what happens to these peoples in this book. But even though that's true, anyone can receive the promise of God's blessing by placing their faith in Him. The God of Joshua is a God of holiness and righteousness and judgment. But Joshua, too, reminds us that he is also a God of grace who shows no partiality. Joshua is not about God, the judge, while other parts of the Bible are about God, the gracious God. No, Joshua shows that God is a righteous judge and a gracious Savior. It's who he is. And he extends that salvation to anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of what people group they're from. That salvation is available to all. Through faith, As a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab was the perfect example of someone who deserved the judgment that was coming on Jericho. She was a prototypical sinner and idolater whose life invited the judgment of God. That's why the author wants us to know she was a prostitute, because he wants to just highlight for us that, that this is exactly the kind of person that God was judging these people for, because they were living lives of sin and idolatry. Yet, Rahab the prostitute escapes that judgment and actually becomes a recipient of the promises of God for his people, becomes part of Israel. And if Rahab can be saved from that judgment and receive the promise, then anyone can. Then anyone can. Well, how did this happen for Rahab? How did this happen? Hebrews 11.31 tells us. Hebrews 11.31 says this in a, in a chapter that's all about the heroes of Israel's faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How did this happen? It happened by her faith. She did not perish with the disobedient because she put her faith in God and gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And if the Bible tells us that none of us are actually better than Rahab, if the Bible tells us that all of us actually deserve what the people of Canaan deserved, and the Bible does say that, the Bible says that not not only, see, this is just a picture of this final judgment that's coming. In, in, in Joshua, there's a, a temporal, earthly judgment that God pronounces on these people. But God has said in his word that there is a final day of judgment that's not on one particular place or one particular people, but it's going to be on all the earth. To all peoples of the world, everyone will give an account to him. That day is coming. It's a day of judgment. It's a day where Revelation says that people will ask mountains to fall on them to escape the judgment of God. And the Bible says that we all deserve that judgment. We are all under that judgment because of our sin, because of our rebellion. But if Rahab escaped judgment that day, that means we can escape that final judgment if we have faith like Rahab had. And if we have faith like Rahab had, then then we can know that God will deliver us like he delivered Rahab. And so what we want to do now is just ask the question, what is Rahab's faith? What does Rahab teach us about faith? What was her faith like? What kind of faith did she have? Because we need that faith. We need the same faith that Rahab had. And so I want to list four things today that we can learn from Rahab about saving faith, true faith, genuine faith, the kind of faith that saves from judgment. First, saving faith starts with hearing the mighty works of God. Saving faith starts with hearing the mighty works of God. Look again at Joshua 2, verse 10. She says, For we have heard... How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to instruction. We heard it. She says, we we heard it. And because we've heard it, we know that the Lord has given you the land. Rahab's faith began when someone told her what happened at the Red Sea. Rahab's faith began when someone told her what happened to the kings on the other side of the Jordan. Rahab's faith began with hearing the mighty works of God. And this is where all faith begins, church. It begins with hearing the mighty acts of God. And we hear those acts in one place, in the Word of God. This is where we hear about the mighty acts of God. And we hear them as people give testimony to the the work of God presently in their lives as they explain how this Word has transformed their lives. We see the mighty acts of God. Rahab heard about the Lord parting the sea for His people, about destroying kings before them. But we've heard about a mightier work. We have a mightier work to hear, a mightier work to proclaim, and that work is that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous life, to die a sacrificial death, but then to defeat death, three days later, to rise from the dead with a resurrection glorified body. That's the mighty act of God that we hear, that we proclaim, and this is what Brings faith. This is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes. When we proclaim the gospel, the mighty acts of God in Jesus Christ, God brings faith about. Faith starts with hearing the word of God in our own hearts, and the hearts of anyone who will believe. And so, to apply this, church, we want the faith of Rahab, then we need to hear the works of God in the word of God. We need to constantly open our Bible listen to teaching and preaching, get in the Word and hear what God has done in Jesus Christ. We all desperately need faith. For every single challenge and situation in our lives, what we need most is faith, which is why we need so desperately to get in the Word and let God birth that faith in us by letting us hear what He's done again and again, hearing of His power and His goodness and His authority. So saving faith starts with hearing the mighty acts of God. But second, saving faith submits to the absolute supremacy of God. Notice, who heard what God did in the land of Jericho? Did just Rahab hear this? Did someone just whisper it to her? No, she says, we've all heard. We've all heard what God did. And our hearts are melting with fear because of it. But Rahab is different than everyone else because what? Because she goes further and she says in verse 11, The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. Rahab is not just here about what this God has done, but then she says, the Lord your God, he is God. He's the only God. He is the true God. There is no other God. All the gods that I've worked my whole life, they are, they are no gods. Your God is God in the heavens. Your God is God on the earth. He is the only true God. And she submits herself to the absolute supremacy of God in her life. She demonstrates faith by drawing the correct conclusion that he is God. And she submits herself to him. So saving faith is more than just knowing who God is. And this is is so important for especially those of you who have been raised in church, youth who have been raised hearing the word. You know all about God. You know all about the gospel. You know all about the mighty works of God. But are you submitting your life to supremacy? Are, are, are you coming to Him and saying, You are God. You are God above. You are God below. You are the God of my life. There is no other. And I'm not going to worship idols anymore. I'm going to worship you. There are far too many times where we see people who knew all about God walk away from God because they never submitted their life to the supremacy of God, it means switching allegiances from your false gods and from your idols to the one true God. That's what Rahab's doing here. She, she is not just saying that Lord is God, but then continuing to go back to the idols. She's saying, "I'm not going to worship these idols anymore because Your God is the true God." So, if we want saving faith, we need to not just know about God, but submit our lives to Him, and specifically knowing that God has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, we submit our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and God. We bow to Him. We confess to Him, Jesus, You are God above and God beneath. You are the one true God. There is no other, and I give my life to You. This is saving faith. So it starts with hearing the mighty acts of God, and then it submits to the supremacy of God. But third, saving faith seeks refuge in the mercy of God. Saving faith seeks refuge in the mercy of God. Rahab asks them to swear to her to deal kindly with her family, to save her, to deliver them from death. See, Rahab doesn't think just because she's heard about God, and just because she knows who he is, and just because she has said she wants to worship him, she still understands I've got a problem. I've got a problem, and that's that I'm not deserving. I'm a sinner. I've worshiped idols. I've, I've lived a life that doesn't please Him, and, and judgment is coming, and I need a way out. She, she recognized that, and so she seeks the mercy of God. She comes to the spies, and she says, Swear to me that you will save my family on that day. And she says, Swear to me by the Lord, by the Lord, by Yahweh. She, she, for as little as she might know about who He is, she looks to God for grace. She looks to Yahweh for her. She says, Swear to me by the Lord that you will deal kindly with me. That word kindly is the same word we use for God's covenant love. said it's God's steadfast love. She says, Deal kindly with me on that day. Save my family. Save me. Deliver us from death. That loving kindness is the gift of God's grace to Rahab. but it But it comes to her. L- listen, this is important. It comes to her ultimately only when she does what? When she hangs the scarlet cord in the window. Now this is interesting um, because just through Bible school and seminary, I've heard several times th- the story about how uh, Jonathan Edwards um, was a bad interpreter of Joshua too, because he said the scarlet cord—it's red, it represents the blood of Christ—and and I've just I've just heard you know that's that's hogwash. Jonathan Edwards was wrong. It doesn't represent the blood of Christ. Okay, so on. But as I looked at this passage this week. Well, I don't think the color scarlet necessarily is, is the thing to focus in on. I do think we see something beautiful in this passage. Okay, think, about, think about this. Throughout the Old Testament, God gives us pictures of people who took refuge from his wrath on a day of judgment. He, he tells us of people like Noah who and his family who were in the ark when the floods came. And if they were in the ark, that that delivered them from that day of judgment. And even more closely to our passage, think about the Passover in Exodus 12. What did they have to do? They had to put the blood of the Passover lamb on their door and stay inside their house. And when the angel of the Lord came to destroy the firstborn sons, if they were in the house with the blood over the door, they were saved. They were spared. Is that not similar to what we see here? Hang the cord in your window, stay in your house, and when this day of judgment comes, it is a day of judgment, you will be saved. These are all pictures that point us to the fact that God does provide a refuge for us. A true refuge, a sure refuge, that if we put ourselves in Christ, in His death for our sins, trusting in His death and resurrection, then we have refuge on that day of judgment. It's a beautiful picture to show us that God is a God of grace who provides a refuge for us. When we seek refuge in the mercy of God, God says, yes, I have provided a refuge in my Son. Just as Rahab needed to be in the house with the cord, we need to be in Christ on that day of judgment. And so seek refuge in the mercy of God, knowing that there is a refuge to be found. That day of judgment is coming But there is a refuge available in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins so that we don't have any wrath to bear if we are in Jesus. So saving faith starts by hearing the acts of God. It submits to the absolute supremacy of God. It seeks refuge in the mercy of God. And finally, saving faith shows in works that glorify God. Saving faith shows in works that glorify God. Rahab did not just say she believed in the Lord. She didn't just have words in the story. Rahab had rock-solid actions to back it up. She showed her faith through her actions. She showed it by hiding the spies. She showed it by sending them to safety. She showed it by tying the cord on her window and remaining in the house when they came. Rahab had works that showed that she truly believed. In James 2, James in that passage is demonstrating the reality that faith apart from works is dead. That if you say you believe, but you don't have works to show it, then whatever faith you think you have is not genuine faith. That's the point he's making in James. And he uses the example of Abraham, Father Abraham, the the hero of the faith, to say that he believed God and then he circumcised his son It It was a work that showed his faith. But then he goes from Abraham to who? He goes to Rahab. He goes to Rahab of all people. And in James 2, 24 and 25, this is what he says. You see that a person is not justified. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, his point there is not to deny the rock solid reality of Scripture that we are saved by faith. The title of this message is Saved by Faith. But when he says that she was justified by works, his point is that she showed that she had the kind of faith that leads to justification by the works that she had. In that work, she showed that she had saving faith, the work of hiding the spies. So, so he points to her, James points to her and says, "says listen, Abraham was saved by faith that showed itself in works, and even Rahab the prostitute, the Canaanite, was saved by faith. And again, if if Rahab... The prostitute could be saved by faith that showed itself in works, and anyone can. All true saving faith will demonstrate itself in good works that glorify God. And so what is the basis of our assurance in the Christian life? It is the rock-solid reality that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. We are assured of forgiveness. We are assured of eternal life because Jesus has died for our sins. He has borne the wrath of God for us. We place our faith in Him knowing He is a sure refuge for us on the day of judgment. But there is a second level of assurance that comes underneath that, that sometimes is stronger and sometimes is less strong, but but Scripture points us to it throughout the New Testament, and that is, are you bearing fruit? Do you have works? Or is it just words? And Scripture calls this, examine yourselves, test yourselves, see whether you are in the faith. True faith, the faith of Rahab, the faith that saves on the day of judgment, shows itself by works. It doesn't seek to justify itself by works, but it shows what it's trusting in through works that glorify God. And so, church, examine your faith. Is your faith bearing the fruit of God-glorifying works in your life? Take time this week to do that. I want to urge you this morning to take time this week to do that. Set aside thirty minutes. Set aside an hour. Husbands and wives, tell tell each other, I'll watch the kids for an hour so you can go spend time and reflect on the sermon and you can ask yourself, what is my faith? Like God God calls us to examine ourselves, doesn't he? We can't we can't do that without taking the time to do it, can we? So I encourage you this week, because of what we see in Rahab, take time this week to examine your faith and ask, is my faith bearing the fruit of God-glorifying works in my life? This is the faith of Rahab. And church, this is a, a wonderful story that shows us that God's grace extends to anyone on the earth as far wide as it can go, and it also extends as deep as it can go, that there's no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace because of their sin. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, was saved by faith from that day of judgment. And we are saved by faith when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, take refuge in Him, submit ourselves to His supremacy in our lives, and live lives for His glory in response. This is saving faith. And so this morning, there are just two possible responses you can have. There's really two types of people in this room right now. First, there are those of you who are still, right now, under God's judgment and outside of God's promises. You are under God's judgment and you are outside of God's promises. You've not taken refuge in Jesus Christ. You've not trusted in Him. And because of that, you are not going to receive the promises of God You will be judged on that day unless, and this is the application, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, I urge you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Like Rahab, respond to the reality of who God is by submitting your life to Him, seeking salvation in Him and living for His glory. If you don't do this, you will experience the judgment of God. But if you do, you will become part of God's people receiving God's promises, forgiveness of sin, eternal life with Him, and a new heavens and a new earth. This is what's at stake this morning. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do, then you move from being under God's judgment and outside the promises to being saved from God's judgment and included in the promises. And that is the second group I want to talk to. Those of you who have done this, who have placed your faith in Christ, who are saved from God's judgment, who are in the promises, who are part of the people What does this this passage teach us? It teaches us to live by that same faith. Live by that same faith. Saving faith is not just for the moment you're saved. Saving faith is for your whole life. Colossians 2, Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? You received Him through faith. So walk in Him. Live by faith. We are called to live by faith in every task, every difficulty, every mundane moment, every significant trial, every water leak, every, every parenting issue. You are called to live by faith, to remember who God is through His works, to submit yourself to His sovereignty, to, to thank Him for the refuge you have in Jesus Christ, for His grace in your life, and to live for His glory in that moment. This is what it means to live by faith in every moment of your life. We see this in the spies. When they come back, they say, God has surely given us the land. And church, we are the people of God on the mission of God. And we can say with as much confidence as they did that God has surely given us what he's asked us to do. We can look at the world which we know is full of those who are lost and we can know that there are many more Rahabs out there. There are many more Phil Mosers out there who do did not know the Lord, but now I do because of God's grace in my life. There are many more people like that, and God has called us to go to them with the gospel. And we can have faith this morning that God has surely given them to us. He is the sovereign God. When the gospel goes forth, He transforms. His sheep hear His voice, and they follow Him. And we can have faith this morning, not only in every mundane, normal moment of our lives, but we can have faith as the people of God that God will accomplish the mission He has given us. I ask you to enter into a time of prayer and just this morning, thank God. Thank God for being a God of grace who saves by faith alone. Being a God who extends His grace as far and as deep as we could ever imagine. God has provided a refuge in Jesus Christ. And this morning, freshly submit your life to His supremacy, freshly trust in the work of Christ for you, and offer yourself to God for His glory and good works.